My name is Jacob Warren. I serve as one of the pastors here at Veritas Church. And if you're new with us or you've been coming for a while, man, it doesn't matter where you're coming from this morning. We are glad that you are here. And if you are brand new, you got one of these on the way out. At the bottom, there's something called a Connect card. And that Connect card will allow us to be able to extend a hand to you. We just need to know who you are for us to be able to do that. And so if you're brand new to Veritas, the best way to get connected is to fill out that bottom of a Connect card, and you can drop that off at the Connect table on the other side of those black curtains on your way out. There's folks that would love to meet you, love to get to know you, be your friend, uh, help connect you with a community group, help connect you with serving, or just maybe just answer questions that you have about Veritas and getting connected here as a part of this family, because we believe that the church isn't a place that you go to, it is a people that you belong to. The church is what Jesus has bought with his own blood and brought us into, and so that's why we gathered this morning to sing. That's why we gathered this morning to open our Bibles together, and so why don't you go ahead and grab your Bible and meet me in Genesis chapter 6. That's where we're going to be this morning. So last week, we made our way through the genealogy of Genesis 5, and we started to see the story of God's judgment and uh, the world, uh, that, that, that story to kind of begin in chapter 6. That death reminds us of the reality of the curse. It reveals to us the truth about God's nature and requires us to live hoping in him alone. And so today we are going to begin this story of the flood. And fear warning, uh, if it's been, a, it's been a minute since you've engaged with the story of the flood, since maybe like the flannel graph days or Sunday school or something like that, if you haven't read that narrative recently and like actually read it in your Bible, like read it all the way through, you may be shocked a little bit this morning because it's a little bit different than you imagine. You know, like remember the, the fluffy looking little boat looks like it's puffed up with air with the animals kind of popping their heads to the top and then Moses' big fluffy beard kind of coming out the other side? Not the story we're going to see today. <laughs> Not that. Not that at all. And so maybe you've read this recently, and you're asking questions about this that you've never really thought to ask before. Like, how did this actually work? Like, how did he get all these animals not to eat each other in the boat? First of all, how do you even get them in the boat, boat to begin with? I can't even get my kids into the van, and we've got a movie player in that thing. Like, how did he even do that? Today after the gathering, you know, I'm about to go on a week-long trip with Kylie up the, uh, the East Coast. We're going to go up to Portland, Maine, and it's going to be incredible. We're going to go camp in Acadia. And so I've been spending my, my nights preparing for this thing. You know, all of my camping gear is going two by two into the van, along with suitcases and things like that. But Noah in this story is going to have a lot more to pack than that. There's going to be 150 days worth of this flood to prepare for. Not only that, every animal that we know of stored on the boat there with him. This is quite literally, I think, the worst cruise I can imagine, where you've got to deal with animal excrement every single day. You've got to deal with squawking birds. You've got to deal with, you know, antelopes and lions right alongside of one another, and you're locked in this boat for longer than you can imagine. Maybe you're asking yourself the question uh, that's plagued like many people, maybe since all the way back in your Sunday school days of what in the world is gopher wood? And why did God choose gopher wood to build the ark with? So it's as interesting as all those things would be to kind of speculate about. I think 
Uh, Moses, the writer of the story who compiled all this stuff, doesn't seem interested in telling us those specific details as much as he wants to show us something more profound here in the story today. He wants to tell a story that's honestly more sobering. We often say that the best interpreter of Scripture is often Scripture. So here Peter's bite-sized commentary on this story in the New Testament before we begin in 1 Peter 2.5. Peter writes, And he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others, and he brought about a flood upon the world of the ungodly. It's a little bit different than the cute boat with the animal's heads. Today, we're going to see that there is a flood coming, a flood that will cleanse the world from wickedness and to righteousness. And that flood is just as brutal and horrific as we could ever imagine. We are going to see, though, that God rescues his covenant family from the coming flood of judgment through one man, a righteous rest bringer who trusts and obeys, who trusts and obeys God. So normally we you know, read through this whole passage of Scripture together uh, at the beginning of, uh, of a sermon like this, but this is a really long section of Scripture that we have this morning. So what we're going to do is walk through these, this section bite and bite at a time. And so we'll walk slowly for the first couple verses and then take it in, in big chunks for the rest of the while. But before we begin in the text, I just want to make sure we're clear on the scene that's being set here. It's important for us to see this passage of Scripture as clearly connected to what we saw last week, of this genealogy and the increasing corruption in the world. The beginning verses of chapter 6 show us the unique state of evil of the world in this period of time. So pre-flood, what Moses says, every thought of mankind was evil continually. Evil continually. I think it's important to note the uniqueness of this in human history. This would be like living in a place with absolutely no moral compass, no sense of right and wrong, no sense of good and evil, only evil continually all the time, quite literally hell on earth. Commentator Kent Hughes says that although we live in a morally messed up age, where there's fallen human minds and corrupted hearts and a corrupted will, he says, this cannot be said of the state of humanity now, this only evil only always, at least not yet. This assessment is that the horrors of pre-flood humanity would have been plagued by these things, corruption, violence, sexual perversion, absolute abandonment of morality, not even pretending to do right by your neighbor, and ultimately death, what all of those things lead to. But remember where we left off last week. In verse 8, chapter 6, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. See, through Noah, God is going to make a new way for humanity. And then we begin this next section with an odd phrase. The phrase is, these are the generations of Noah. This phrase is significant because there's only nine of these phrases in the whole of the book of Genesis. So here's a little fun uh, back and forth we can do this morning. You want to learn a new Hebrew word, you know, to, you know, show off to your friends at parties with, right? (laughs) I knew all of you were just waiting for that this morning, right? Let's learn a new Hebrew word. It's it's toledot. Okay, say it with me. 
Toledot. Toledot. Toledot means family history or family records. There's nine of these over the, the book of Genesis. And the reason I'm telling you this is not just to kind of impress you with Greek or Hebrew or anything like that. It's so that you call your dad next week. It's Father's Day. You need to be interested in your family history. Remember your dad. That's free. Remember to call your dad on Father's Day. And you know, go call him and say, hey, I want to talk about the Toledo. And he won't have a clue what you're talking about. He'll just be glad that you're calling him, okay? And so the real reason I mention these Toledots is that they're separate, and they separate Genesis into 10 distinct sections. That even before verses and chapter headings were in our Bibles, these were distinct markers for the major, major sections of Genesis. We've already seen two of these already. Genesis chapter 2, verse 4, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth. Then last week we saw in Genesis 5.1, this is the book of the generations of Adam. And today we see Genesis 6.9, these are the generations of Noah. This is the family history, the legacy. This is the story of Noah. Let's look at verse 9 and 10 more closely together of chapter 6 of Genesis. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. And Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. All right, let's stop there for now. I know we had two verses in and we're already throwing on the brakes here. It's like riding uh, alongside of that guy who slams the accelerator at the, the stoplight and he flies all the way down the road, but then you roll up to him nice and slow to the, the, the next stoplight because he didn't make it through the next light. I know that kind of maybe what it feels like right now, but we need to address if we're going to address the unique wickedness of the world, we need to acknowledge the unique righteousness of Noah. First, it's said of Noah that he was a righteous man. This is the first mention of righteousness in the Bible. The first mention of righteousness in the Bible. This would grease the skids for the biblical standard of righteousness that comes only by faith. The next clear example of a, a righteous man would be Abram, and we'll make it more explicit in Genesis 15, verse 6. And he, Abraham, believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. Next, it's said that Noah is not only righteous, but he is blameless in his generation. This speaks of his high moral character. And to be sure, Noah wasn't sinless. We'll hear more about that from Ryan next week. Yeah, the dude is going to blow it pretty quick. But his, his high moral character is in sharp contrast to the depravity enveloping the world at that time. See, there is this detail that Noah also walked with God. And we've heard this before. It's actually the second time we've heard this before. First, with Adam and Eve in the garden where they got to walk with God in the cool of the day. It's almost stated like it was a normative thing. This is something that they got to do every day with God. And then last week we saw Enoch. He walked with God. And that life of rich, meaningful, deep relationship that he had with God meant that at the end of his life, he didn't die. He was taken by God. The seventh generation from Adam in perfection is taken from God to show that God rescues those whom he loves. He's going to bring those whom he loves into himself, those who walk with him. And so walking with God doesn't mean that Noah literally got to walk with God. Probably not. See, walking with God means that he enjoyed a deep relational union with God. Does it mean he literally got to go on walks with God in the cool of the day? 
he, that was lost in the garden. God, Noah got to engage with God the same means that we enjoy, and this should bring us some hope and actually call us to walk as, no, as Noah did. See, Noah didn't have the secret sauce. Noah didn't have the secret formula for engaging with God that was kind of lost in translation to us. See, there is no secret sauce when it comes to walking and enjoying God. These things are normative for us, and they'll come up on the screen. It's things like engaging with God through prayer, meditating on the truths of God, that he is creator. Noah knew that about God. He knew that he was good. He had already called himself good and all of creation good, that he's just, he's gonna avenge the death. He's gonna speak into sin, into Abel. He knew these stories, that he is provider. He provides all things. We, he also got to engage in silence and solitude through simple and sacrificial living in light of God's goodness and grace. And finally, through serving others, we already saw that in 2 Peter 5, that Noah is a herald of righteousness. He has already served others by calling them to righteousness and belief in God. We can learn from Noah and ask for the Spirit to help us walk with God as we did. Maybe you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus. You're, you, you're testing these claims from Christ that is he really the way, the truth, and the life? Is he really the way, the only way to commune with God, the only way to be reconciled to God? And it's through these things, through these means by which we have been given to engage with Christ, engage with God. And those are the prayers God loves to grant. So we as followers of Jesus, we pray in faith, saying like, God, give me faith like Noah. Give me steadfast hope like Noah. These are the ones that don't keep us focused on ourselves, but outwards towards God himself and outwards towards others. As we continue in this story, what we're gonna see again and again is that Noah trusted God and he also obeyed God. Noah has been faithful to obey God's original commission back in chapter one of the Bible of all of humanity to, be, to multiply and fill the earth. He's got three sons. But this next command that's about to come here in light of the corruption of the world it's gonna be a little bit more of a stretch. Just imagine if I came to you and we lived in a desert community, right? Think, have you ever been out to Arizona? Maybe you were at Fort Huachuca or something like that. You're out in the middle of nowhere, no rain, it's not normative, and I come to you one day and says, look, man, we gotta build a boat. Like a big boat. Like a really, really big boat because it's gonna start raining and it's not gonna stop. And I said, well, how big are we, gonna, are we talking about? Like enough for maybe your cats and my dog or something like that? No, we need a boat for all the animals. Not like two cats and a dog, but like every animal. We're going to need to line them all up. We're going to need to do all that. It's going to be great, I promise. 150-day cruise is free, totally free. We'd sound a little crazy, right? Noah himself is going to feel, maybe tempted to feel and sound a little crazy. But as God tells Noah the plan, I want us to see and hear, Noah doesn't ask questions, he doesn't complain, he embodies trusting and obeying. Let's pick up the pace here and start in verse 11 and read through chapter seven, verse five. Here we go. We're gonna hear a lot of Bible this morning. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence, and God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an, oak, uh, an ark of gopher wood. 
Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits. Its breadth, 500 cubits. Its height, 30 cubits. Make a roof of the ark and finish it with a cubit above. Set the door of the ark in its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh, which is in the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you. You shall come into the ark, you, your sons, and your wife, and your sons' wives with you, and every living thing of all flesh you shall bring, two of every sort, into the ark and keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female, the birds according to their kinds, and the animals according to their kinds, and of creeping things of the ground according to its kind. Two of every sort shall come into you and keep them alive. Take also of you every sort of food that's eaten and store it up. It shall serve as food for you and food for them. Noah did this and he did all that God commanded him. How are we doing? Then the Lord said to Noah, go into the ark that you and all your household, for I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Take with you seven pairs of clean animals, the male and his mate and the pair of animals that are not clean, a male and his mate and seven pairs of of the birds of the offspring alive on the face of the earth. For in seven days I will send rain on the earth, 40 days and 40 nights, and every living thing that I have made I will blot out from the face of the ground. We hear again, Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him. So there's a lot that just happened in that story. Again, I said, you can hear a lot of Bible today. But I think you probably got the gist of it. You got the main beats, you know, from Sunday school, right? Flood's coming. Ark is going to save them. Noah's supposed to build it. There's some really, really interesting pieces of this story that I think are significant as well. One, don't miss out that God tells Noah to build the ark. He actually invites him in on the work of saving humanity. God could have snapped his fingers and an ark could could have appeared. God could have done all of this himself and just said, I've already prepared everything for you, Noah. Just walk on in, buddy. But no, he invites Noah in on the work. He wants to partner together with humanity on this effort. Man is going to be a part of the saving work of God. God is going to establish his covenant with Noah as well. See, if you're not familiar with some of this biblical language, maybe covenant is one of those Christianese words that you hear and you're like, ah, I don't really know what it means. It's not like a contract. But what it really means is this establishment of a relationship, much like a marriage covenant would be. Like when you said, I do on the altar to your wife if you're married, or if you've said, I do to the lease agreement, to the home that you're going to pay off, right? That's you saying, I do. That's entering into a covenantal relationship where I'm gonna uphold my end of the bargain. And what God promises here is that he is gonna enter into a covenant with Noah this people, this family, this person. And if one end of that party is God, that means that covenant is eternal. It's forever. It can't be broken. It can't be shaken. It can't be messed up. God's gonna uphold his end of the deal here. And then third, that the ark isn't just for Noah. It's for the animals too. That this rescuing work of creation, yes, is primarily concerned with preserving Noah and his family, But all of the animals and the rest of creation, every tier of it, did you hear that? The birds of the heavens, 
the beasts of the fields, like even the, uh, the creeping things, are, uh, like the creepy reptiles, and can you imagine having an alligator on that thing? They're included in on this deal as well. And did you notice what's repeated twice in the passage? How the, the end caps, if you will, of these sections. Each of these sections ends with the statement, and Noah did all that the Lord commanded him. See, this should show us that the, res- the right response to God's commands are trust and obedience. Noah wouldn't build this ark if he didn't trust God. He could have just written it off and was like, that sounds crazy, not going to do that, don't understand that, provide another way, God. Noah trusts, and he also obeys. He does build this ark. I think it's important that we pause here and ask that as we read the commands of God in Scripture, and hear the words of Jesus, when we read the Scriptures, is our initial response to trust God and obey? Or do we choose our own way? Do we balk? Do we question God and say, I think I know, I think I know my own way better. God, what about if you did it like this? Or what if I only had to obey this part of this? I think this should remind us of somewhere else in the biblical story further ahead in the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 30, 15, where Moses would say to the people of God, see, I've set before you today life and good, trust me, obey, or death and evil. You can choose your own way. It will lead to death. We often choose our own way and we reap the consequences of our actions and it feels like death. We invite death in our disobedience. We willingly choose it. Paul tells us in the New Testament that he knows what to do, but the evil lies close at hand and sin lies close at hand. And I often do the thing I very hate. I I even hate the sin that's within me because I have been redeemed by Jesus, but it lies close at hand and it, it comes. When it does come, it does feel like death in us. Even now, as we read this story, we can feel the coming flood a little bit. The waters are beginning to rise. Let's jump back into this text. Genesis 7, verse 6. Noah was 600 years old when the flood waters came on the earth. And Noah and his sons and wife and his sons' wives went into the ark to escape the waters of the flood, of clean animals and of animals that are not clean, of birds and everything that creeps in the ground, two and two, and male and female went into the ark with Noah as God commanded Noah. And after seven days, the waters of the flood came upon the earth. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, in the 17th day of the month, on that day, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth. And the windows of heaven were opened, and rain fell on the earth 40 days and 40 nights. On the very same day, Noah and his sons, Shem and Ham and Japheth, and Noah's wife, and the three wives of his sons with them entered the ark. They and every beast, according to its kind, and all the livestock, according to their kinds, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, according to its kind, and every bird, and every, every according to its kind, and every winged creature, they went into the ark with Noah, two and two of all flesh, in which there was the breath of life. And those that entered, male and female of all flesh, went in as God had commanded him, and the Lord shut him in. The flood continued 40 days on the earth. The waters increased and bore up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the face of the waters. 
And the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole of heaven covered. The waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them 15 cubits deep. And all flesh died, moved on the earth. Birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth, and all mankind. Everything on the dry land in whom its nostrils was the breath of life died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground. Man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, they were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark. And the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. This is the darkest point in the story. In Hebrew, the way you would tell a story like this, one of the ways is you build all the way to a certain point. And this reason why all these things are repeated again and again and again, you're getting deeper and deeper and deeper into an apex, apex point in the story. And this is as deep and as dark as this story gets. All of mankind died. We can't imagine how horrible this would have been. Think with me, if you will, for just a moment. If you'll let your mind go there. When the first rains came, you have people mocking God saying, what's up with just a little rain? What's rain going to hurt you? I walked through a rainstorm yesterday. I was at a woodpecker's game last night, and it started drizzling a little bit. I didn't think, oh, going to die. No. And you start thinking that on day number 10, though, when it hasn't stopped an absolute deluge of rain, like think thunderstorm type rain. If you've ever been out in the Midwest, big thunderclouds, thunderclaps the whole time, you know, it looks like the rain's coming down in like, you know, golf ball sized pieces or whatever, just splashing everywhere. What happens when the riverbanks have all overflowed and the people are start congregating on the hilltops and there's beginning to be debris and dirty water swirling with dead animals and trees and people. If any of you were in Fayetteville during Hurricane Matthew, it was terrible around here. Trees and power lines came down, didn't have power for a couple days. You know, me, what they call an adventurous type, so I get out in my dirty old pickup and start driving around, seeing what's going on, you know, after the rains kind of calm down for a little bit. Get down to the lake near my house, and the whole road is eclipsed by the lake now. Like, water level's coming up to the people's houses at this point. I made it down, downtown, and the buildings in the, near the train tracks downtown were flooded. Entire homes along the riverbank were lost, and families were displaced for months. But you know what? Those rains stopped. That hundred-year flood that came stopped. There was grace. There, it ceased. See, in verse 16, it says that lo, the Lord shut in Noah and his family and the animals. This singular means of rescue, this ark. So that means that everyone else who was not brought in was shut outside of that means of rescue. They were shut out, no chance of rescue. Death was coming from It was only a matter of time. We're not told of any stories of humans outside of the ark. We are only left with this bleak detail in verse 23. 
only Noah was left. And those were with him in the ark. And the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. We can't, we don't even like let our minds imagine this. People on the outside of the ark clawing to get in, beating on the big door, let me in. Can you imagine being Noah, knowing that the rest of humanity was being wiped off the globe on the other side of that door. And then 150 days, the worst cruise in human history. Even though we know that God is in control in this story, we know this, we've seen it already through the story. We're not, we're not questioning whether or not God is good in the story, whether or not he's in control in the story. He's the one who sent this flood, but it looks like these floodwaters are going to win. Back in Genesis chapter 1, after God, it says, in the beginning he made the heavens and the earth. It says the earth was without form, void. Darkness was over the face of the deep. The Spirit of God was hovering above the waters. It seems like those chaos waters in the beginning, the dark void of the earth, have returned. And we don't, it looks like there's no hope here. I don't know if you've noticed in the story yet, there's no mention of the dry land reappearing. It's 15 cubits deep, the highest of the peaks of the mountains. All of creation submerged to death and dying. There isn't much hope, but our rescue from death is sealed by God's gracious remembering of Noah. God remembers Noah. Let's look and jump into chapter 8 together. Let's look at chapter 8, verse 1. This verse is which all of our hope hangs on. But God remembered Noah. He remembered Noah. All the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark, he remembered them too. And God made a wind blow over all the earth. Like in verse 1 of the Bible, this ruach, the spirit of the God, this wind, it's blowing over all of the earth and the waters are subsided. The fountains of the deep and the windows of heaven, they were closed. He's in control. The rain from the heavens, they were restrained. The waters receded from the earth continually. At the end of 150 days, the waters had abated. And in the seventh month, on the 17th day of the month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. And the waters continued to abate until the 10th month. And in the 10th month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains were seen. Can you imagine if Noah was able in that ark, finally, to look out and see, finally, there's dry land again. In the biblical story, dry land, anytime it's mentioned, that's the place of human flourishing. It's the place where we humans can actually live. We're not meant to, to live in the waters. We're meant to live on the land. And so this was to signify, I have gone to make a place for you. I've gone and prepared this place. I'm receding these waters. I'm taking you through the floodwaters of death onto the other side where I'm gonna give you life. Life again, new life. These are the hinge point. This is the hinge point of the narrative. See, God is reforming his momentarily disordered world. See, in this we see that God remembers Noah and the animals. He remembers that he's going to promise a covenant to Noah. He's going to establish it with him. Then also that creation 
It gets a restart here. The wind blows over the earth to remove the waters. The flood stops at the Lord's command. He's in control of it all. And the ark lands on top of a mountain. The waters recede when this dry land appears. This is supposed to remind us of reverse order Genesis 1 happening again. This is the same pattern again. Waters separated. Dry land appears. God provides a place to put his people. He is going to protect them. He is going to provide for them. Now, This story isn't just something that we are supposed to memorize and store away in our heads, but these are truths that are supposed to penetrate our hearts and point beyond themselves to a future rescuer, to a future coming rest bringer, and remind us ultimately of the gospel. That although that there is a coming flood of death and righteous judgment from God, it's only through faith, like Noah, that God remembers us and he reconciles us to himself through Jesus. He is this one means of rescue. He's the only place we can put our hope. Through Jesus, God has established a new covenant. Through his very blood that promises our rescue through death. But his death would bring us into this covenant family and rescue us from the flood of coming judgment. Jesus would be this one man and righteous rescue bringer who trusts and obeys fully. Unlike Noah, who would do this unperfectly, Jesus would bring us true rest from the curse and establish a new creation and will establish a new creation that will last for eternity. That creation is going to get yet again a new start in Jesus and a new start that will bring the new heavens and a new earth that will bring to ultimate fulfillment when Jesus returns again. And it's through this, we as humans get a new start. We get a chance through faith in God to repent when we fail. This flood of judgment that came upon the unrighteous and the wicked and deserving world, we realize that we too, as humans, deserve the righteous judgment of God because of our sin. Yet through Jesus, we have been provided a way of rescue, an ark for us to go into. And through Jesus, who experienced death for us, as the, the ark was surrounded by the floodwaters of death, we, through Jesus, are rescued from those floodwaters of death by being part of Christ, being in him, like the animals, like the men, like the women, we are invited to come be rescued and redeemed from that work of Jesus, that, that work of man and God rescuing all of creation would find its fulfillment in Jesus on the cross. The God-man dying the death that we deserved, pouring out his blood for us as the righteous judgment of God was being held by him. So we repent. Repentance is when you're going one way, you realize that that thing is wrong, that thing is broken, or that thing is sinful, and you decide to turn the opposite direction, turn from your way and go an opposite way. This is what repentance is, turning from your sin and going towards your Savior. Deuteronomy 30, what Moses would write afterwards, no doubt thinking of the flood again, and the coming dispersion that's going to happen of the people 
in Deuteronomy 30, verse 2, he says, Return to the Lord your God, you and your children, and obey his voice in all that I command you today, with all your heart and with all your soul. And then your Lord will restore your fortunes and have mercy on you. He will gather you again from all the peoples that the Lord your God has scattered you. When we are so often scattered in our affections for things other than God, our thoughts and our priorities, when we think that other things should get our time, that other things should get our attention, other things should get precedence, those things fully grown, even those desires for good things, can lead to death in our own lives. It's in those moments where it feels like the flood of death has come for us. Because of our own foolishness, we can know a way of escape. Because God is so good, because God is so kind, because he is so merciful, he has provided for us these precious promises like we have with Noah that can teach us to repent before God and return to him with all of our heart and all of our soul, and he will have mercy on us because this flood coming for the ju- of judgment is real. I want to invite the band to join me on stage. And uh, we're going to end this story today with these words from Genesis. I don't want us to hear, because you know the rest of this story, if you grew up in the church at all. And if you haven't, I pray that this, the end of this story reassures you in the hope that we can have in Jesus. Even though God remembers Noah, there's this process of God coming through with his faithfulness, where Noah sends out a dove, he sends out a raven, and it returns and shows him the promise. It will come true. Let's read these verses together. Genesis 8, verse 6. At the end of 40 days, Noah opened the window of the ark that he had made and sent forth a raven. It went to and fro until the waters were dried up from the earth. Then he sent forth a dove from him to see if the waters had subsided from the face of the ground. But the dove found no place to set her foot, and she returned to him from the ark. For the waters were still on the face of the earth, so he put out his hands, and he took her, and he brought her into the ark with him. He waited another seven days, and again, he sent forth a dove out of the ark, and the dove came back to him in the evening. And behold, in her mouth was a freshly plucked olive leaf. So Noah knew that the waters had subsided from the earth. Then he waited another seven days, and he sent forth the dove, and she did not return to him anymore. In the six hundredth and first year, in the first month, on the first day of the month, the waters were dried from off the earth. And Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and behold, the face of the ground was dry. God had done it. In the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth had dried out, and then God said to Noah, Go out from the ark, you, your wife, and your sons, and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing that is with you of all flesh, birds and animals, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that we that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out. He obeyed. His sons and his wife and his sons with him. Every beast and every creeping thing and every bird Everything that moves on the earth went out by families from the ark. Church, 
we have the greatest news in all of the earth. Jesus, through his gospel, has provided means of rescue to this dying world in which there is going to be coming a flood of judgment for them. And they know it. They're experiencing it now. May we be faithful to go, trust, and obey, proclaim this good news as Noah did. Let me pray for us. Jesus, would you stir in us this morning a deepening gratitude to you for for what you have saved us from, our sin, our faithlessness, our brokenness, those things that which have hindered us and brought death in our lives. Thank you for rescuing us from those things this morning, Jesus. Praise you for those things. God, thank you for what you saved us for. You didn't just save us from death, you saved us for life in you. So we pray, Lord Jesus, and we live into that life. May we trust you, may we obey you, will you help us in that work? And the very spirit of God is stirred over the face of the waters to bring apart dry land, stir so in our hearts this morning. And even the, the chaos waters that seems to want to win our affections for our own heart this morning, and we know that your spirit resides wi- even within us to dispel those waters and bring apart, bring about the dry land of faithfulness, of faith in you, of hope in you, of walking in your wisdom and your word. I pray that that would be our story. That would be the things that we are most grateful for among this church, your stories of grace in us and getting to proclaim that to others. I pray that in your name, Jesus. Amen.